Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about Lyme disease. If you see that bullseye rash in the summertime, early, uh, late spring or uh, early fall where the ticks are still active, that in and of itself is diagnostic. Then we'll look at home health aides, one of the fastest growing low-wage occupations in central New York and America. I did interview um, home health aides across the state, upstate New York, and if we improve the training and the management styles and approaches, I think we would definitely reduce the kinds of job stresses that impact health on, hum on home health aides. And we'll learn what we need to know about anesthesiology options. We, we make sure that there are certain medications that need to be stopped, certain medications that need to be increased. Uh, so these are the things um, that are done in the pre-op assessment clinic. All this, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an occupational health researcher will tell us all about home health aides who make up one of the fastest growing low-wage occupations in Central New York and America. Then, an anesthesiologist will explain how to prepare for surgery. But first, we'll talk about what's most important to know about Lyme disease. The abundance of deer ticks throughout central New York fuels the fear of Lyme disease. With us today is Dr. Christopher Polino, an assistant professor of medicine specializing in infectious disease and the director of clinical research at Upstate's Center for Global Health and Translational Science. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Now, prevention is the best strategy, I assume. Insect repellents, removing ticks proper, prop, promptly, reducing tick habitats. But despite our prevention efforts, um, it's really not that unusual to find a tick after visiting a park or even playing in the backyard. So if someone finds a tick on themselves or their child, what should they do? So, uh, you know, some, some places don't advocate saving the ticks. I, I prefer to see the tick to make sure that it is a deer tick. Um, so save it in a plastic bag? Save or? it in a plastic bag, some kind of a container where obviously it won't escape and potentially put anybody in the household at risk. Um, but, you know, here at Upstate, um, you know, the infectious disease providers um, can recognize the adult ticks. And if there's a question, we have entomology colleagues who we could easily either bring the, the tick to or send a picture of the tick and, and they can help identify it. And that way it kind of determines whether or not you're at risk for Lyme disease because the Ixodes scapularis deer tick is really the only one that's going to uh, carry the disease um, as opposed to some of the uh, other ticks that you could see in the area. Interesting. So that would be helpful it to would be. remove it and save it. Okay. Um, now, Lyme disease is not something that develops overnight. I mean, if you get bitten or remove a tick one day, you're not going to wake up with the bullseye rash the next morning, right? Right. Yeah. Typically, um, if you get a if you get a tick bite, you may get a local reaction to the tick bite itself, to the salivary proteins and whatnot, and you can get a little lesion at the bite with a little surrounding redness. The bullseye rash is more distinct. It's usually five centimeters or bigger uh, in diameter. And it usually occurs about a week to two, maybe three weeks after the initial bite. Um, it can be accompanied by kind of acute symptoms uh, where you have the early localized Lyme disease where it's at the site. You may have some fevers, chills, flu-like symptoms. 
Um, people have described it to me as, as feeling like you have the flu without any of the respiratory symptoms. Um, oh. And then um, after you get the, those kind of generalized symptoms, the aches and the pains and whatnot, um, there are other syndromes that you can develop. There's uh, early disseminated Lyme, which um, can present with uh, heart findings where you can get the electrical, electrical activity of the heart can be dis, um, disorganized and you can go into heart block and that has its own symptoms, typically fatigue, uh, potentially chest pain. Um, and then there's other uh, aspects as well, uh, similar uh, to uh, uh, things like uh, uh, meningitis. So there's a Lyme meningitis that you can get with bad headaches, you can get Bell's palsy, uh, which half the face is basically paralyzed. Um, and then there's also the, uh, the, uh, the arthritis that can occur as well as you kind of get later in, into the uh, development of the, the disease itself. Are these like complications of Lyme? Or are they more severe cases of Lyme? Or? Yeah, I mean, everybody's different. Um, and, and depending on whether or not you receive treatment early enough, um, you could develop some of these more complicated cases. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a question of whether or not the, uh, the spirochete, which is the organism that causes Lyme, actually infects these tissues or if it's more of an immune response. Um, you know, there's some, some differing opinions out there about that. So um, it, it is essentially a spectrum of complications like you could see with really any, any type of infection. So if you end up with this um, flu feeling without the respiratory and you remember having a tick encounter, mm -hmm. um, you end up going to your primary care doctor, I assume. Mm -hmm. How does he or she diagnose that it's Lyme? So there's a couple things. So, you know, going back to finding the tick, if you find a tick on you and you bring it in and it's it's obviously engorged with blood, there is a prophylactic uh, regimen uh, where you can take an antibiotic for a single uh, dose. And it has been shown in a very small study to prevent the development of Lyme disease. Now, if it's beyond that time frame and you have the bullseye rash and, you know, potentially the other symptoms, you know, in an endemic area such as ours and, and the rest of the Northeast, if you see that bullseye rash in the summertime, early, uh, late spring or uh, early fall where the ticks are still active, that in and of itself is diagnostic. It is. Uh, yeah. If you see a bullseye rash in this area and you have any of the other symptoms, yeah, I would call that Lyme disease and I would treat you as, as such. Um, as far as some of the other symptoms, um, you know, if somebody comes in with bad headache, uh, the Bell's palsy that I had mentioned with uh, the facial asymmetry, um, the cardiac complications, generally uh, you take those clinical syndromes and you pair it with a serologic test where you actually measure antibodies to Lyme disease. And there's a screening test and a confirmatory test. Um, now, there are some drawbacks to this test. Um, they're basically, um, they require your body to have an, a functioning immune system. So, you know, one of the drawbacks and one of the criticisms that many have with the diagnostics of Lyme is, you know, it may not work for everybody. Um, so the sensitivity may not be as good as, uh, as one would hope. There are uh, a couple other tests out there. Um, there's a C6 antigen test, which is a uh, you know, a newer FDA-approved test. It's not currently in the guidelines, although um, I'm sure they'll add that to the guidelines um, in the next year when they come out. And then there's also um, other more molecular tests like PCR, where you can actually look and try to find DNA of the Lyme disease. Not really a great test since the organism isn't usually abundant in the bloodstream, 
really the best place to test with that particular assay would be in um, you know, a joint aspiration where you actually stick a needle in an affected joint and you, you test for the DNA there. Um, not everyone gets the bullseye rash though, right? Mm -mm, no, uh, many people don't. Um, and that's where it really gets difficult because, you know, you may have like a nonspecific flu-like illness. It could have been Lyme. You may not have had the rash and then you don't get treated right away. And, and typically the people who go on and develop more of the chronic symptoms that you hear about are people who don't get diagnosed and treated early on. And unfortunately, about 10 to 20% of Lyme patients do go on to develop these kind of chronic syndro uh, syndromes um, that, that can be very debilitating um, and, and very disturbing to, to the patients that are affected. So if you find a, a tick and remove a, a tick, it's better to come in and be seen and get treated then mm -hmm. rather than waiting to see if you develop these symptoms or right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, earlier is always better when it comes to, to most diseases uh, and infections in particular. So uh, I would agree. Okay. Well, I've got some more questions. But first, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Christopher Paulino. So once Lyme is diagnosed, how is it treated? So there's a, there's a handful of drugs that are, uh, are classically used to treat uh, Lyme disease. The most common one is doxycycline. Um, it's, it's a very versatile antibiotic that can be used for a variety of different things. Um, you know, when, uh, when I was in the military, we used it, uh, for malaria prophylaxis for quite a long period of time for people deploying overseas. Um, it's also quite active against, uh, various, uh, tick-borne illnesses. So not just Lyme disease, but things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anaplasmosis, ehrlichiosis, mm -hmm. other things that we could potentially see. Um, Generally, if you have early infection with Lyme disease, you can treat for about a 10 to 14 day period. Um, so if you see a bullseye rash, that should be sufficient. Um, some providers recommend going three weeks. Um, and then for some of the other uh, syndromes, like the, uh, the heart syndrome that I mentioned, the, card mm -hmm. uh, the carditis or the meningitis, uh, generally we treat for uh, 21 to 28 days. And in, in some of those cases, we'll start with an intravenous drug called ceftriaxone. Um, and, and that uh, also has great activity uh, against Lyme and, and typically does, uh, does the trick in terms of treating the patient. Again, some patients will have some of these chronic uh, symptoms that may persist for weeks or months afterwards. Um. Where are we with a vaccine? If, if we have so much Lyme around, is, yeah. would that be better to be able to vaccinate people? So, so yeah, there, so a little bit of history. So there, there was a vaccine that was FDA approved uh, going back several years that had been withdrawn from the market. Um, there was some question of whether or not it was causing some of the uh, joint symptoms and um, uh, other symptoms of Lyme disease. Uh, and uh, it was a fairly good vaccine but because of the um, because of the criticism of it, it, it did get pulled. Um, because we we do have this massive influx of uh, ticks and, and subsequent tick-borne illnesses, um, we've uh, we've seen more interest in developing a vaccine. And there is a vaccine that's in development uh, from a European country, country that's actually going to be uh, tested here in the United States, in addition to other places. So hopefully, it's coming. Hopefully. Okay. Now, what happens if someone goes untreated? If they ignore the symptoms and so, yeah, so, I mean, 
you know, one of the one of the concerning things is the the cardiac uh, manifestations. Um, you know, you can go into complete heart block, um, and and that can have its own consequences uh, and uh, and potentially be uh, uh, a fatal complication. Um, what most people end up having is these chronic joint symptoms and chronic just feeling fatigued, uh, headaches. Um, people describe a memory fog. Uh, where they just can't think clearly. Um, and this can happen either without treatment or with treatment. Um, there's there's really two camps that are looking at Lyme disease. There are people who um, consider this a post-Lyme disease syndrome, uh, where it's uh, an acute infection with potential damage to the nerves during the infection, and then a potential autoimmune or immunologic phenomenon that causes inflammation chronically. Hmm. And these symptoms, as I said, can go on for weeks, months, and sometimes in some cases, years. Um, and then there's the, the other camp um, that thinks this is a chronic infection where there's uh, persistent uh, bacteria causing these symptoms. Um, although, you know, most of, the, most of the, the studies that have looked at randomized control trials um, don't really support that, that, second, um, that second side. But there are two, two groups that, um, that, that feel that there's different things that need to be done. And there's uh, patients, not you said, I think 10 to 20% that mm -hmm. may end up having chronic symptoms. So right. what do they do? Yeah, so it's really difficult. Um, you know, there's, there's really no great therapies for these uh, chronic symptoms, and it's, it's mostly supportive as of right now. Um, you know, some people um, who believe this is a chronic infection advocate for a chronic course of antibiotics. Again, uh, the data doesn't really support that. Um, and then there's also a lot of kind of supplemental uh, therapies, um, supplements that are used um, by some providers. And they can be quite expensive. Um, you know, I've heard some patients, you know, say that they pay $500 to $1,000 a month just to pay for these. Um, you know, my thought is, you know, we don't really have good data to support this. Um, and it would be best if we could do a randomized control trial looking at patients uh, who receive these supplements? Who you know, you know who uh, who receive the supplements compared to people who don't, and see if to they see actually what, work. They work. Yeah, and if you can get some grants that can support the research, you know people wouldn't have to pay out of pocket. The the cost of the drugs and the supplements would be, you know, out of the grant, um, and people wouldn't have to you know remortgage their houses in some instances to pay for the therapy. That's interesting. Thank you for taking the time to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Christopher Paulino, an infectious disease specialist at Upstate, who also directs clinical research at Upstate's Center for Global Health and Translational Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, the ins and outs of the home health aid occupation on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Perhaps the fastest growing low wage occupation in America and in central New York is that of home health aid. An occupational health researcher from Upstate who knows quite a bit about this job is Jeanette Zeckler. She's the Director of Research and Special Projects for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers at Upstate, and for several years she's been involved in the Low Wage Workers Health Project. Thank you for coming on HealthLink again. You're welcome. It's great great to be here. Let's give listeners a little background. You're um, part of the Department of Family Medicine at Upstate, and this Low Wage Workers Project is entering its fifth year, and there's also a collaborative uh, effort with uh, Syracuse University's Aging Studies Institute, right? Right. So the Occupational Health Clinical Center serves people who get hurt or are sick from their work, and we serve um, patients in 26 counties. But we also have a prevention side of our operation in which we do public health projects. The Low Wage Workers Health Project, now in its fifth year, thinks about um, the workers working conditions of low-wage workers. And that um, one is now under a New York State Department of Labor um, grant expansion. And part of that project, you know, I was... I was interviewing and having focus groups of low-wage workers, and I kept running into home health aides who were struggling with their work-related health. And so as a part of my dissertation, um, my PhD studies, I um, developed a study to look at the stresses that work um, at work for home health aides. Okay, so tell us um, what is a home health aide-like definition and what the job entails? So home health aides in the state of New York, and it does vary by states, they do the basic, um, very lowest um, skilled nursing. So they will be doing bathing, um, feeding, maybe um, coming in and making sure that the person is health status is is, you know, uh, stable. They will not be administering medication. They do serve under the um, supervision of registered nurses. So they are able to just carry out, um, like I said, the most basics, bathing, cleaning, uh, basic um, nutrition, and those sorts of activities that really make a difference in the um, health care of especially older people or disabled people. Is there any licensure or uh, certification required, or can anybody be a home health aide? Well, there's a lot of this work done informally, of course, just among family and friends um, for various sorts of arrangements. But to do this in New York State, there's a 10-week training, and then you um, do become uh, eligible to do the work officially. Like That's way uh, Medicaid can be billed and Medicare, the billing um, for the services can be can take place. And then this work usually takes place um, through agencies that that manage uh, home health. Okay. And so the agency would place um, a home health aide in someone's home, at someone who wants That's health. right. That's right. Under the, under the um, you know, care of the, the nurse. And ultimately, the doctor orders these things. So the doctor will order this, the registered nurses supervise, and then home health aides carry out the basic work. Um, what is, when we say low wage, what, what do um, home health aides generally start out making? Home health aides in this central New York region make some of the lowest wages that I hear about. So they make a minimum wage, $10.70, up to 11 or $12. In some cases, if they have been doing it for many years, they may approach a $15 mark, but it's generally quite low paid, and the arrangement is generally per diem. Uh, very few have a full-time job where they're offered benefits. It's often very um, sporadic scheduling. Okay. So what have you found in terms of numbers and, and who who are the people that are doing this type of work? 
Well, um, most people doing this type of work really do it because they love it. And they somehow have connected through their lives with caring for people at home, um, either a family or a friend. And then they decide that this is something they enjoy doing and find great fulfillment. There are mostly all women and much more. Uh, there's an overrepresentation of people of color in these in these jobs. And is it young or older? Or? Interestingly, um, you'll very often find middle-aged women doing this work or even older women. So there's a characterization in your mind of low-wage work being with young people. But very often, this is not an entry into a, a career that has a strong path. So it's um, often women entering the workforce at oh. middle age. Okay. So uh, what types of stressors come with this sort of a work well, environment. in the research that I did, I really leaned on some stress models that we know about in occupational health. We know that when there's high demand and there's low control over what you're doing, you have little say in how it's being done. And even worse, when there's um, lack of support, that that creates a situation where the stress at work impacts health negatively. So we do see that in the home health, you know, Aid, aids work. There's a high demand, there's strong caseload, there's, it's difficult work physically and mentally. And then, you know, sometimes the, the home health aid is isolated from the agency or from their supervisor and they are left on their own a bit, you know, out in the community. And those sort of conditions set up a high stress. And they also experience um, what some call the effort reward imbalance, where they're doing so much work for so little coming back to them that they can tend to feel strained in that way. There's a strain where it's just not worth doing this for this money. But there's yeah. got to be some, some good to it, too, because mm -hmm. um, some people might like the what what you might call isolation but they they might see it as independence and they like being they don't want to be in an office mm -hmm. absolutely there's a lot of people who report that they like the independence they like to um, go in and feel that they have um, sort of charge of the care of the person that they're taking care of and they do set up quite a a setting for the person to um, either carry out the end of their life or engage in healing, whichever process is going on. Often it's palliative care, often end-of-life care, and the home health aid brings a lot to their work, and, and they do enjoy the sense of satisfaction that they're doing what's something important. And I imagine um, there can be some pretty close relationships that form, mm -hmm. too, um, between an aide and the family or the loved one that they're taking care of. So. Absolutely. They, they do form the emotional bonds. And one of the things they'll say to me is, you know, listen, I'm human. They teach us to have some objectivity, but we really just can't. We do make these emotional connections. Mm -hmm. But they're also able to disconnect in a professional way as well. It's not as though it's their own family in the end. Right. So most aides, as you said, are employed by an agency. Are there stressors that agencies are under um, that sort of maybe spill over onto the aides themselves? Yeah, I mean, a part of the research that I did was to interview home health agency leaders. And those agency leaders were able to just clarify some of the reasons why the aides are placed under those kind of pressures. The pressures that they face, um, especially around reimbursement. So why the low pay? Well, they're only reimbursed so much from Medicare and Medicaid. And so it's difficult for them to, you know, raise their wages. And um, they try to employ reward systems and that they're only partially helpful. Um, I think that when I look at some of the strains that could be easily reversed and changed around, um, we see agencies that have the registered nurses 
in a culture where they have a high sort of authority structure over the AIDS. And there may be many good reasons for that. However, many of the AIDS feel disrespected on the job, and that adds to that um, strain. And again, these job strains lead to chronic disease uh, states, right? So hypertension, um, there's connection between um, even reduced immune function when people feel under these strains. I mean, those are um, based in literature, not just an intuitive sense that the mm-hmm. stress isn't any good. Um, it's actually connected to people's long-term health, and that's why it's important. And even connected to injury rates. So injury rates are higher where we see strain higher, job strain and stresses. I think it's obvious person can't keep their mind on their job as well as they could, and other sorts of injury prevention isn't happening. And so then um, the stress actually is implicated as a part of the explanation for, for injury rates. Is there something that can be done to improve um, improve that through training? or? Yeah, I think that, you know, the upshot of the studies that I conducted, which I did interview um, home health aides across the state, upstate New York, and um, the agency leaders. And in the course of that, I also um, engaged in what they call participant observation. So I was able to hang out at these agencies and just sort of see what's going on, really. And in the course of that um, process, I really found some places that were conducting best practices for management, best practices for training. And if we improve the training and the management styles and approaches, I think we would definitely reduce the kinds of job stresses that impact health on on home health aides. Well, let me ask you this. If, if, uh, if one of our listeners is considering a job in home health aid, as a home health aide, um, do you have any advice for how they can go into that job and, and get, the, get the most out of it and, and have sort of a safe way of working? I think the most important thing is to get good training. There's a number of training, you know, outlets here in, say, in Syracuse, New York. And then connect yourself with an agency that has fair standards, that upholds, um, that doesn't allow for discrimination on the job, that has a strong uh, set of home health aides that are already connecting with their in-service trainings. And I think that finding that mix of uh, an agency that has strong values that can match your values because you care about people is why you want to go into this. I think that would be the best path. And and to realize that the home health aid can be an entry to a longer path where someone would start there and then seek out advanced home health aid training, become an LPN eventually, and those sorts of um, pathways to better better career options to elevate you know, yourself is, is possible through home health aid, where it may not be through other low-wage jobs. Other low-wage jobs may not have the same opportunity for pathways. So it could be a way to sort of show you whether um, this field is something that you would mm-hmm. excel in or that you would Certainly. enjoy. The home care will be expanding as we go. So we know that we have a baby boom going on and so, you know, that went on. <laughs> and so right. those baby boomers are aging now and the expansion of um, our healthcare system is such that we would like more people to be in their homes longer and recovering at home because people are more comfortable there and that's where they want to be. So to be part of that, you know, ongoing push to um, have have those sorts of settings, I think is is exciting and can be a good entry level. But to watch for decent pay and some places are unionized and that may uh, also enhance your employment arrangement which is what we say is, you know, your sort of your agreement, what you agree to do for the money you're making. It sounds like um, when you say, you know, choosing an agency that matches your values, it sounds like that might be as 
difficult to do um, as it is for a, a person to find a good home health aide. Mm-hmm. Um, it, word of mouth, um, recommendations from friends. I mean, how do you go about doing that? Well, I think there are some major agencies in town. If you Google um, home health care, Syracuse, New York, you'd find some of the larger agencies in Syracuse. I think um, there is plenty of word of mouth. You certainly could call the Occupational Health Clinical Center, and I might have some more insight as to where someone might try um, to, to, to work in this field. But generally speaking, it's kind of like, you know, you have to enter any job with eyes wide open and think about the arrangement you're agreeing to. Do you have enough transportation? Do you have enough support in the workplace to actually carry out the job that they're asking you to do? And if you ask enough questions about that and you feel like you can connect with the agency leaders there, I mean, there are plenty of people uh, in the leadership of these agencies that are interested in recruiting and retaining uh, home health aides um, over the long haul. So they, they definitely want to... S- want to do well by their people good advice thank you for being here my guest has been Jeanette Zeckler director of research and special projects for the occupational health clinical centers at upstate I'm Amber Smith for upstate's podcast and talk show HealthLink on air I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Meditations on psychology, or what I did on my summer vacation. Well, folks, actually, it should read what I do on my everyday vacation because right after I wake up every day, well, almost every day, I'm trying to be flexible. <laughs> is I meditate for 15 or 20 minutes. I take a brief vacation from my nonstop, gotta do, gotta do, problem solver mind that runs me and you automatically from the moment we wake up and instead I reflect. How? Well, I just lay down or sit relaxed and put my attention on my breath, specifically on the small pause between my in-breath and out-breath, and between my out-breath and my in-breath. And whenever my attention runs to some thought, usually a problem, usually about every 15 seconds, when I notice it, I gently send that thought off into outer space and nudge my attention back to my breath. In, out, in, out. Now, the root word of psychology is psyche. To the ancient Greeks, it meant soul, spirit, breath, mind. These days, psychology is defined as the study of behavior and the mind, including thoughts and emotions, both both conscious and unconscious. So when I'm meditating, I'm exploring my psycheology my breath, my thoughts, emotions, and their link to what I do. Meditating the other day, I found myself humming the song, Getting to Know You, Getting to Know All About You. That's what I'm doing, meditating. Now, 
I'm a novice meditator, so I am discovering. Discovering that my thoughts can be repetitive. Discovering that thoughts are just thoughts that my mind generates and that they generate feelings, some good, some not so good, and that I can think them if I want, and if I don't, I can think something else, or I can notice my breath and relax my body. Of course, as a psychologist, I know one of the best ways to change what we think or feel or do is to observe whatever we want to change. If you have something in mind that you'd like to change, you might consider becoming your own psychologist and meditating and discover, how do you do? Research shows as little as 12 minutes of meditation a day is good for our mental health. In my 15 or 20 minutes the other day, up popped this joke from long ago about philosophers, intellectual cousins of us psychologists. To be is to do. Camus. To do is to be. Sartre. To dooby-dooby-doo. Sinatra. I'm Dr. Rich, the Omster O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, options for surgical anesthesia on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you've ever faced surgery, you know that one of the important members of the operating team is the person in charge of the anesthesia. With me today to talk about what to expect and how to prepare for anesthesia is Dr. Srinivas Toda, an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> well, let's start with what is the overall goal of anesthesia? Is it pain relief? Is it amnesia? Is it comfort? What, what's the goal of anesthesia? Well, generally speaking, the aim is all of them together as much as possible. And when a common person mentions anesthesia, they're generally talking about general anesthesia. And when we say general anesthesia, it's, it's broadly defined as basically a drug-induced reversible depression of the central nervous system, that is the brain and the spinal cord, resulting in a loss of response to and perception of external stimuli. So as you mentioned, the components of anesthetic state does include unconsciousness, amnesia means loss of memory. So you don't remember? Yes, so that we don't remember of the events around the time of the surgery. Analgesia means inability to appreciate pain, which is good. Okay. <laughs> and to some extent, immobility. Okay. And then um, you mentioned general anesthesia. That's only one, one type of anesthesia, right? And, yes. And general would be... 
when the person is totally the unconscious, unconscious and he doesn't know what he or she doesn't know what's going on and they're immobile and they don't feel anything at all. Okay, what are some of the other types of anesthesia? So, starting from simple local anesthesia, that usually involves one or a couple of injections around the operative site. It usually involves uh, like um, doing surgery for a, a small skin mole or a skin cancer where we inject this local anesthetic medication and the area becomes numb and they go ahead and do the procedure. Surgeons do go ahead and do the procedure. And uh, So the surgeon can do his or her work without the patient feeling the all pain. of the pain. Yeah. Okay. When, when we do local anesthetic, this, the patient, we do tell the patients that they will be feeling the procedure, but it shouldn't hurt. Okay. They are mostly awake. We give them some medications to calm them down, but they are mostly awake. Okay. That's local anesthetic. Next comes regional anesthesia. Now, this is a little bit more involved. The physician anesthesiologist, what he does is uh, he or she will uh, look at the nerves supplying the major parts of the body, like limbs, upper limbs, lower limbs, and inject, uh, um, use the ultrasound machine to look at those nerves and inject local anesthetics around these nerves, nerves so that the limb becomes numb. And okay. the surgeons can go ahead and safely do the surgery. These are done under sterile aseptic conditions in the operating room usually. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we do inject local anesthetics and combination of medications into the back, or the, um, like spinal or epidural. And you might have heard of that, epidural um, spread commonly used for a, a woman during childbirth. Oh, sure. Okay. okay. All right. And then um, intravenous sedation? Intravenous sedation is another type. It's also call, commonly called monitored anesthesia care. The medications, the intravenous medications are given. This, these sedations can be very light sedation um, to one end. The other end of the spectrum is deep sedation. We can, we, when I say we, it's the anesthesiologist can uh, deepen the level of sedation. Uh, so you can adjust it during the procedure if you need to? Yes, we can adjust the, the medications um, according to the procedure. Like for colonoscopy, we give minimal sedation so that the patient doesn't remember much. But sometimes we can go deeper sedation if they are going, going to do some procedures during the colonoscopy. We can increase the level of medications ah. that we can give. So usually at the end of the procedure, the patient does not remember much about the procedure. So who picks what kind of anesthesia? Does the patient have a say in what kind of anesthesia they're going to get, or does it is it dictated by the procedure they're having? Patients do have a say, but then it also depends on the procedure and what, what the proceduralist wants. But the patients do have a, a, a role to play. They can choose, but there are certain conditions that cannot be done under sedation. People have to go for general or regional okay. anesthesia. Okay. Well, um, patients typically have a preoperative anesthesia assessment if their surgery is planned, mm -hmm. um, where they come in a few days before or something. What, what, is, what does that consist of, and what is it looking for when you do well, the... Well, that's a good question. So most patients who are having an elective surgery, a planned surgery, we recommend that they see the preoperative anesthesia assessment clinic, uh, a physician anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist or a nurse over there who's trained in pre-op assessment. Uh, um, they see the patient go through the entire physical and history and physical, go through the whole medication list and if required, they will go through, uh, ask for special investigations if needed. They have, we go through the whole system, the cardiac, the heart, the lung, the, the endocrine system. And if there are any medications that need to be altered. 
um, um, we optimize the patients and also give them a set of instructions to be followed for a day before the surgery and we give them in, um, instructions for the day of surgery so that the, um, um, the whole experience is uh, smooth and un uneventful. So there's no surprises when exactly. they get there. So are you basically trying to make sure they're healthy enough to have surgery and to have anesthesia? And, and Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, we try to optimize the patient to the best health possible so that uh, they, uh, there are no surprises on that day. There are many patients who have, are, are on multiple medications and we encourage the patients to bring their list of medications or if possible, all the medications uh, so that uh, we, we make sure that there are certain medications that need to be stopped, certain medications that need to be increased. Uh, so these are the things uh, that are done in the pre-op assessment clinic. Now, at um, Upstate University Hospital, we have a beautifully functioning uh, uh, pre-op assessment clinic um, at 550 Harrison Street, where we see most of our patients who are going for an elective procedure. Interesting. Someone who has um, like sleep apnea, if mm -hmm. that comes out in the exam beforehand, does that affect anesthesia? Oh yeah, sleep apnea is a big thing. Um, and uh, so we encourage those patients who have sleep apnea, if they're using the CPAP machine, we tell them to bring the CPAP machine to the, uh, to the hospital uh, for the, it'll be probably used uh, immediately after the surgery. And if they are going to stay in the hospital overnight, we would like them to use their CPAP machine. And not only that, um, sleep apnea has multiple effects on the heart, the lungs. It, um, so uh, we go through the whole checklist, making sure that the sleep apnea does not really interfere with his anesthesia and surgical experience. Okay. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology, Dr. Srinivas Toda. Uh, now, most patients are told that they have to stop eating and drinking several hours before surgery. Why, why is that? Well, before an elective planned surgery, we always ask our patients to be starving. Now, even 30 cc's or 30 ml of stomach contents as they go to sleep, if that gets into the lungs, that's called lung aspiration. 30 cc's is not a whole lot. That's It's a very tiny amount. Okay. Even if that gets into the lungs, which can happen if they're not starving, that can give rise to severe complications like pneumonia and prolonged ICU stay. So we want the patients to be starving. Now, they can take clear fluids. Clear fluids means water or um, fruit juice without pulp. Um, they can be taken, ingested up to two hours before the uh, surgery. Okay. Um, solids, um, like so anything fatty meal, um, it's not supposed to be taken for at least eight hours before the surgery. Now, for infants, babies, we recommend that they can take breast milk up to four hours. And non-human milk, six hours. Non-human milk is considered somewhat like solids because it solidifies oh, um, okay. in the stomach. And so we, to avoid the risk of aspiration, we always advise fasting uh, for at least a few hours before the surgery. Now, we've recently had an orthopedic surgeon uh, who was on HealthLink on Air who explained how smoking can greatly delay healing. Mm -hmm. um, does it also increase the risk of anesthesia-related problems? Absolutely. Smoking not only causes delayed wound healing, has uh, surgical problems, but it also increases the multiple other risks, lung problems. Um, it can increase the risk of pneumonia. Immediately after the surgery, the patient, uh, especially if they are having abdominal or surgeries on the thoracic cavity, they won't be moving their lungs too much because of, of the 
of the discomfort. And if they're smoking, there is a higher chance of them having secretions, and this does increase the risk of uh, um, lung complications uh, like infections and pneumonia. Also, it has multiple effects on their heart. It can increase the risk of heart attack, huh. angina. So we always suggest that they should stop smoking, pre preferably at least a week before the surgery. If not a week, then at least try their best not to smoke on the day before the surgery and for at least a few weeks be after the surgery. Okay. Well, let's talk about the risks of anesthesia and whether are those risks greater in older people? Absolutely. Uh, as one grows older, the brain becomes a little bit more susceptible to the effects of anesthetics. Um, yes, one of the common complications is nausea and vomiting, which is more common in women, especially younger women. But as one grows older, there, uh, these anesthetics have, do have an effect on the aging brain. So sometimes um, the older people, they are left with post-operative delirium. Uh, after surgery, one can become a little bit more confused, problems remembering things or focusing on things and unaware of the surroundings. So this the, delirium, is that uh, temporary? It's usually temporary. It can last for a few days, when up to a week. But okay. then there is another type called post-operative cognitive dysfunction. We call it POCD. This is more common in people who have underlying conditions like previous stroke, mild dementia, including mm. Alzheimer's, lung disease, congestive heart failure. And this can sometimes be permanent. And, um, and sometimes it can be debilitating. And okay. this is a much more serious condition. Are there things that um, people can do, elderly people can do to help reduce the confusion after surgery? Absolutely. So we always ask family members to stay with the patient after the surgery or before the surgery. This helps them feel, uh, the patient feel a little bit more comfortable and less disoriented. We also encourage them to bring their glasses, their hearing aids, so that they can be used as soon as possible after the surgery. Now, in the recovery room, we do uh, sometimes encourage them to stay um, near a window. Um, this is helpful to gaze out and so that they can tell whether it is day and night, or day or night, sorry. And sometimes we do tell them to pack familiar objects like uh, um, a family photograph or a calendar into the bag so that the, uh, this does help them readjust to their surroundings after the procedure. Now, in terms of risks um, to anesthesia, I, I know that you go over like medications that the people are taking, but um, some people might not consider herbal and dietary supplements as medications and may mm -hmm. not mention those. Um, are, are they a problem for anesthesia? Absolutely, if you're right. It's surprising that 50% of the Americans are on some sort of dietary supplements. Vitamins or something. Vitamins, ginkgo, ephedra, vitamin E, for example, ginkgo and ginger. Uh, ginkgo is used for improving the memory but does increase the risk of ble bleeding. Ginger has some antiplatelet-like action, mm. does increase the risk of bleeding. I'm not saying they're bad. They are absolutely good for your body, but we suggest that these be stopped for at least a couple of weeks before the surgery. Ephedra, vitamin E is commonly taken this for slowing the aging process and for a number of reasons. It can also increase the risk of bleeding and cause blood pressure problems intraoperatively. So we suggest that those herbal supplements should be stopped for at least a couple of weeks. And all these are addressed um, in our pre-op assessment clinic at 550 okay. Harrison Street. Wonderful. And then um, just, we, we talked about older adults. What about children? Are there special considerations when a child is facing surgery? Absolutely. Now, having a surgery or a medical procedure can make anyone anxious. But when it comes to a child, it adds a whole new level of anxiety for the whole family, including the child. 
So uh, the child may have surgery in the hospital and spend the night in the hospital or may have a procedure in an outpatient surgery center and go home. Um, but the most important thing that we advise the patient, the parents is uh, they do play a very important role here. They need to be honest to their children and they need to be confident. Nothing suits a child more than and a confident well, the parent, parent. The parent may be a little nervous about it too. Oh yes, they are nervous about it. But we give them enough information so that they know what to expect. And so the the children they should um, you know they should be explained that um, there is difference between home and then hospital, uh, what to expect. They sh they should be informed that there might be a little pain, they might be a little sore after the surgery, they might have to stay in the hospital after the surgery. But the doctors, the nurses will. They're friendly people. They'll take good care of him or her, and um, as soon as he's fine, he'll be he or she will be sent home. Neat. Well, thank you for this. This has been a good overview. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. My guest has been uh, Dr. Srinivas Toda, an assistant professor of anesthesiology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We live in a staccato time, short, intense bursts of talk or tweets or conversation that jumps from looking at our phones to looking at the real person standing next to us. It's not a time that invites leisure, but sickness or aging or healing can do that. I have two poets who share that now unusual activity of living in the moment for the moment. Here is naturalist, artist, and perhaps not surprisingly, snail expert Marla Coppolino and her poem, Slowing. Moving distinctly and unconventionally with deliberate, unhurried pace, a whispered Tai Chi dance in the nucleus non-worry. Now I see the spaces between the raindrops and the soft outer glow of seeds and sprouts and leaves and larvae and the multicolors of lichens and patterns on spiders and cicadas whose calls swell in pitch and volume. I calmly study ripples in the wake of the atmosphere of those who advance more quickly than I choose. And in similar fashion, California poet and social worker Donna Emerson gives us some breathing room in sipping tea. Since surgery slowed me down, I live in an old summer, sip from morning's cup. My mouth lingers on its porcelain edge. Tea steam wafts toward the manzanita. Tea fog drapes me, floats me away from porch and chair. What an easy landing on the spread jasmine. Feet now sticky, honey dew in my nostrils, walking on tiptoe toward the far fence.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, get an update on sickle cell disease and learn about some advances in stroke care at Upstate. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.